0: Welcome to Adopted Feels with Hannah and Ryan, a podcast on anything and everything adoption related, brought to you by two Korean adoptees in Melbourne. For the next two episodes, we'll be doing a special sort of BuzzFeed-esque list of 10 things relating to search and reunion. And at the end of each episode, we ask each other some questions. Today I'll be giving you my list of 10 things I didn't know about birth family search. In the next episode, Hannah will be running through her list of 10 things she didn't know about birth family here we go. 10 things I didn't know about birth family search. So a bit of background. The first formal step I took was in August back in 2015 when I approached the Department of Health and Human Services in the state of Victoria to contact the adoption agency on my behalf. I was adopted through Eastern Child Welfare Society, now called Eastern Social Welfare Society. I have my so-called initial social history, which includes information like my case number, my legal status as illegitimate, names and ages of my birth parents, name of my foster mother and when I went to live with her, and things like, apparently I was quote unquote, mild-natured, moved my limbs a lot when crying, and sleep well. So I guess not much has changed. In February 2016, Eastern Social tells me they have no medical history to give me, no more information on my birth mother's situation at the time of my birth, no current information on either parent. They also say they've started a search for both of them. At the end of March 2016, Eastern tell me they found an address for my birth mother and that they sent her a telegram, but she hasn't responded. About six months later, they get in touch with me again, telling me my birth mother hasn't responded to the second letter they sent, and hence they have to close my case. So point number one, this is gonna sound really, really obvious, but the process is really disorienting. So the primary reason why I decided to start a birth family search in the first place wasn't because I wanted to connect with my birth family. I realize that sounds odd, so let me try and explain. I've had access to my initial social history for as long as I can remember. My parents are meticulous record keepers, and for that I am really grateful, and I know this also makes me lucky. But I never really properly looked at my file, or memorized my birth parents' names, or looked up where Kyungseong Namdo was on a map. I understood what happened to me as a story about a young woman who found out she was pregnant after breaking up with her boyfriend, and who felt that inner country adoption was the best option for both herself and her child. And then I started hearing stories about Korean adoptees and their experiences with the Birth Family Search process. I learned that many Korean adoptees discover that something in their file is incorrect or misleading. So that piqued my interest. Then I started reading about Korean adoption practices. And it was then that I came across a fact that I think ultimately changed how I viewed my adoption and adoption in general. And that was this. There were 8,837 Korean children adopted to Western countries in 1985, the year I was born and came to Australia. That's about 736 children per month, or one child an hour. That really put my so-called individual story into perspective. Later, someone that worked for the Victorian government told me that most of the initial social histories they'd read over their career all pretty much used the same narrative. A story told, 8,837 times in one year, to me, ceases to be a personal story of individual misfortune and the inability to keep a child, told over and over and over again. It's the story of an industry. In light of that realization, my interest in pursuing a birth family search was really driven by a curiosity about my birth mother's circumstances at the time of relinquishment. I know that choice is a complex concept or idea, but I wanted to know if my birth mother felt like she was in a place to make a choice, if she felt she had the agency to make a real decision about what was best for her child and best for her. So the birth family search process is really disorienting, because if you start with the awareness that a lot of adoptees have found discrepancies or misinformation in their files, then you don't know what is true, you don't know what bits and pieces to hold on to, which ones will take you in the right direction. If it's an industry, you also don't know how much to trust or rely on what the adoption agency says, in your file but also in your subsequent communications with them. For instance, do you just take their word for it when they say they've found birth family and sent them a telegram? What if the wording of the actual telegram or letter is confusing? What if it was sent to the wrong address? I went ahead and visited Eastern Social in late 2017 and made an appointment to see my file. I was hoping to get a bit more information if I went and spoke to someone in person. Despite the fact that my case was closed by that point, Eastern staff came across quite defensive and secretive. They wouldn't leave me alone with my documents and I wasn't allowed to bring anyone in with me during my file review. Ultimately, the fact that I was pretty distrustful of Eastern by that point worked in my favor and that leads me to my second point. So number two, searching is not straightforward, and you may have to try multiple avenues and approaches. So in March 2017, roughly six months after Eastern closed my case, I contacted the adoptee-run organization based in Seoul, called Global Overseas Adoptee Link, or GOL, for help. They initiated a search, but unfortunately the search broke down due to staffing changes and a tenuous relationship between the organization and the Korean police. They then suggested I open an application with Korean Adoption Services directly. So in August 2017, I get in touch with KAS. So just to explain how the process worked, KAS, which is a centralized government-run program, received my adoption information directly from Eastern Social. KAS then ran a search and like Eastern, found an address for my birth mother and sent a letter. Because they only had the name and age of my birth father, they had to run a police search. They also emailed me a form called Notification of Adoption Information of Petitioner, which basically replicated the information from my Eastern file, because it was taken from it. Except, this notification actually gave me a few more details. For instance, it listed my original resident registration number and the resident area of my birth father. While this is happening, I was visiting Seoul on something like a fact-finding mission and, as I mentioned, went to Eastern Social seeking more information. I also visited Goal in person, and they very kindly created flyers with my baby photo and name on it so that I could circulate them in Masan city where I was born. At Goal's recommendation, I also went to a local police station in the neighboring city Changwon and submitted my DNA to go onto the missing persons register. I think the local police were quite intrigued by by my situation and agreed to search for my birth mother. Unfortunately, they were unsuccessful. I returned to Melbourne from Seoul in early November. By that point, I was pretty content with the things I'd tried and ready to really just let things be. I'd had some really amazing experiences, including meeting my foster mother and visiting the maternity clinic in Masan where I was born, which happens to still be open. I was incredibly lucky as the clinic had a handwritten record of my birth, and so I could verify my birth date and time. I even got to meet the midwife who delivered me. Plus, I got to spend some great time with friends in Seoul. So the night I returned to Melbourne, I received an email from my KAS caseworker saying she had just got off the phone with my birth mother, My birth mother responded to the second letter that KAS had sent. She had never received the letters from Eastern Social. So it's tiring and it's laborious emotionally, physically, and time-wise, but I would really caution against taking the adoption agency's word for it when they say they cannot find birth family or that they found them and they haven't responded. And if they close your case, try other avenues or approaches. Number three. It's not simply a fact-finding exercise. So when I initiated my birth family search, I really framed it in my mind as an information-gathering or fact-finding mission. I was going to approach it in an investigative way. I was aiming to differentiate fact from fiction, finding little bits and pieces of information to build a larger picture. In hindsight, I think this is how I've been trained, both formally and informally. So I try and intellectually understand a situation or event in order to make sense out of it, to disassemble complex things into analyzable pieces, or to treat pieces like they add up to form a picture that makes sense. I tended to approach my birth family search like it was a puzzle. I connected to it intellectually, but less so emotionally. I connected to it politically as soon as I realized that fundamentally adoption is a feminist and social welfare issue, but I didn't prepare for how I might feel about the process. And I think this is easy to do because if you have no memory of your pre-adoption past, then all you've got are these scant material traces of the process. You've essentially got a typed three-page document with a few names and details, which may or may not be true. And out of that, you produce a narrative. You imagine and create a story or you accept the one offered to you. You have no photographs. You have never had a meaningful relationship with anyone biologically related to you. It's hard to connect to a real living history. It's hard to connect the information in your file to a living, breathing person. A turning point for me came when I visited the maternity clinic where I was born. The midwife told me it's the sort of place a lot of women only visit once in their life, particularly if their circumstances are like my birth mother's. I imagined my birth mother there in that small two to three room clinic, possibly alone. I imagined what it would be like to continue to live and build a life in the same city as that place if she found ways to avoid the street the clinic is located on. Number four, it's near impossible to search with no expectations. So I didn't want to expect too much because I knew the chances of getting more information out of Eastern Social or locating my birth family were slim. So I tried to avoid disappointment altogether by expecting next to nothing. Throughout this process though, there were a few things that came up for me that I emotionally reacted to in ways I didn't anticipate. For instance, my birth father's name and details were provided to Eastern by my birth mother. I don't know if these details are correct, but it is my understanding that sometimes these can be made up names and ages in order to protect birth mothers or birth fathers or both. Before I searched, it never occurred to me that his name might not be correct. This matters for search purposes, of course, but it also matters because I'm named after him. My current middle name, Lee, is a trace of my pre-adoption past. Realizing that the name might not be his made me feel disconnected in a way that I'd never experienced before. Another thing that affected me in unforeseen ways was finding out that my birth mother didn't name me. I realized that I'd always assumed that she had. Turns out I was named by Eastern Social. So ultimately my Korean name isn't a trace of my pre-adoption past per se, but a mark of and by the adoption agency or the institution. I guess what I'm saying in a roundabout way is, if you start a birth family search focusing only on finding birth family, you're not preparing yourself for what you'll learn about institutional processes and for how that will affect your sense of self. Once I found my birth mother, I also realized that I assumed and maybe hoped that there would be a physical resemblance. I expected a moment of recognition when I was sent a photo of her. I even asked KAS to send it in a new email thread so that I wouldn't open a pre-existing conversation and be unprepared for seeing her face. But when I first looked at her photo, I didn't feel anything. I couldn't even see a resemblance. I realized I could walk past her on the street and not even look twice at her. I felt a bit disappointed too, and I felt awkward about expressing that disappointment. The interesting thing is I opened that email when I was with a group of close friends and they could see a resemblance where I couldn't. Over time, I'm more able to see small ways in which we look alike. Number five, you might never feel ready. If you're like me, that's really a general statement about life, really. But anyway, you might never feel ready for anything, even if you hope things will happen and fall into place. Obviously that doesn't mean you shouldn't fumble your way forward or around or through it all, but if you wait until you feel really ready, you might be waiting a long time. Because there are so many elements of this process that you have no control over and which don't make immediate sense. There are issues with translation, there are issues with speed of communication, lack of communication, changeover of caseworker staff, there's the luck of the draw, you might get a sympathetic eastern social worker or police officer. You might be applying for assistance during a particularly busy time, and your case gets put on the back burner. I don't think you can control things and take things at your own pace. A lot of the things, at least. When I asked Eastern to search for my birth family, for instance, I wanted information on them. I wanted to know where they lived, if they have other kids. I thought I'd get the chance to decide whether or not to make contact with my birth mother. But Eastern went ahead and sent telegrams before asking me if that's what I wanted. Of course I later found out those letters never reached her, but regardless, things get set in motion and you have less control than you think. For me, wanting to feel ready is a manifestation of a wish to have control over the process, to have thought through everything that could go wrong or be uncomfortable. But readiness is also ensuring that you have adequate supports around you. And that's the kind of readiness, I think, that is ultimately more important. Number six, it might open up other aspects or dimensions of your life. So I believe that opening yourself up to this process has associated, if unpredictable, consequences. This process has amplified aspects of myself and personality, for instance, that I didn't pay as much attention to in the past. For example, throughout much of this process, I've often felt like I'm witnessing events in someone else's life. I have to consciously and willfully try and emotionally connect with what is happening around and to me. This is ongoing work that i'm doing and i'm learning how to do this with the support of others but it can be challenging i've often worried that there's something wrong with me because i'm not feeling emotions i expect to or that i think other people might expect me to have birth family searches also happened around the same time as my coming to terms with my gender expression and identity and i don't think this is an accident i think this process is an intense Process really of questioning what being adopted means, how you want to live your life, how it relates to your personality and sense of self. It involves questioning what is important to know about yourself and your history, and it's a process involving vulnerability and exposure. Number seven, it may make you feel more ambivalent about Korea. So I've always felt unsure about what it means to be Korean, but to have no cultural awareness. I spent most of my high school years attending an international school in Seoul, but I largely viewed my being Korean as an accident. I think when you're adopted, you can feel like who you are, your name, nationality, all of that is contingent and accidental because you might have easily been someone else. When I started a birth family search, when I started learning about how a child is made into an orphan and then made into an adoptee. And when I read about Korea's military versus social welfare funding in the 80s, it made me feel much more ambivalent about Korea. I don't think that the birth family search necessarily makes you feel more connected to Korea in a totally positive way. So I think you're going to have to grapple with a lot of contradictory and ambivalent feelings about the country and its practices. Number eight, communicating can take a long time. So. I really found that communication was difficult and and took a long time, and I don't just mean communications with agencies and caseworkers, but I also mean once I was connected with my birth mother. So there's definitely issues with translation, like culturally and linguistically, but I also found that even though there was so much anticipation from my end, or maybe because of that anticipation, I found I would put off replying. I'd put off just sitting down to properly think about what to say to her. There are and were a lot of protective barriers that I'd built. So I think giving yourself permission to take your time with things and treating yourself with compassion is really important. Number nine, you're risking a lot. By starting a birth family search, you're really putting yourself in a situation where you have a lot to lose. Where you risk disappointment and abandonment. It may upend many of the things you've believed to be factual about your past. In a general sense, it may throw into question what being adopted is and means for you personally being adopted may take on a deeper significance. It has definitely become a more substantial part of my life and identity since I started actively searching. I think you can also feel like you're risking relationships with your adoptive family. Even though my parents have been very open about the fact that I was adopted for as long as I can remember, there's still the worry and fear that by starting a birth family search, you're somehow betraying them and risking hurting their feelings. It's also really easy to lose focus on what is happening for you, if you're constantly worrying about how others around you are feeling. Many times I've had to give myself permission to take my time processing things and to give myself the space to choose when to communicate things to others. So the birth family search can definitely be daunting, but I believe that as adoptees, we are more resilient than we believe we are, and there are plenty of supports out there. And that leads me to my last and final point. Number 10, you also have so much to gain. You have so much to gain from starting a birth family search, in spite of all the hesitation and ambivalence and the frustration. This process has involved an expansion, deepening and strengthening of friendships and connections with other adoptees as well as non-adopted people. I've learned that being adopted is something that connects as much as, or even more than, separates. I had really sweet moments with my foster mother when I met her in 2017, even though she had no time nor interest in my vegetarianism, and fed me copious amounts of seafood and corn dogs. She gave me the firmest hugs, showed me photos she'd saved of me when I was a baby, introduced me to her beautiful family. She can't speak English and I'm rubbish at Korean, but she video called me when I was at the airport on the way back to Australia just to wave vigorously at me. All in all, I've been really overwhelmed by the support I've received, by the kindness other people have shown me, and by the willingness of others to open up and share their experiences and insights. And this process has forced me to be more vulnerable, to ask for help, to seek company when thinking about the broader and more existential questions that being adopted has brought up. And it's also taught me to be more patient and forgiving with myself. So that concludes my list of 10 things I didn't know about birth family search. I'm going to invite Hannah back on to ask me some questions.
1: Do you want to say welcome back onto the show? Like, hi. Hey Hannah. Hey. <laughs> so firstly, thanks for your list. Um, I thought it was really well written and thoughtful and hopefully really helpful for people. Thank you. So my first question is, what even is a telegram? <laughs> <laughs> Do we live in the 1950s um and i'm i've always been like why are agents still using telegrams as their preferred method of communication if they're so unreliable i guess this is a rhetorical question i don't expect you to know the answer
0: (laughs) i'm glad it's a rhetorical question because i i literally don't know how to answer that um i was really confused as well From what I understand, it's, like, a registered letter.
1: Right. But I've heard that sometimes, like, they end up going to the wrong person somehow.
0: Yeah, that was definitely my fear. And ultimately, it, it just never got to her. So, and I don't know if that's because it went to the wrong person or, like, I know nothing about that. I just know that she never received them. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it does seem like quite an unreliable mode of communication for something that's so sensitive and so important. Um and the wording of the telegram as well. I think that it's extremely vague. I think that mine just said gender and the year of birth. And they said, oh someone is looking for you. But like that's yeah. all the information they gave.
1: Yeah. Yeah that's quite mysterious. Like someone from Australia is looking for you. Yeah. And- <laughs> You know, and the mother, like, might not even know where her child was adopted to, you know, like... Exactly. similar
0: stories. Exactly. And in my case, I, like, much later found out that um, my birth mother didn't know that I was adopted through Eastern Social in the first place, which is why she didn't respond to the first
1: letter that she received from KAS. It's just, like, the most inconsistent process... Yeah. ...in the world. (laughs) Um, so... I guess you were quite shocked when you heard that your birth mother, birth mother, like never received those telegrams at all.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was. I guess my over, my overriding feeling was frustration with Eastern. Um, like I, like I said, I could have like just taken their word for it and then been like, oh yeah, well, I tried, and that's that's all I can do. Yeah, two years later, hearing she never even received the letters, that was that was really frustrating.
1: Yeah, your experience also reminds me of a quote from an article written by the Australian adoptee Steph McDonald, um, who was a friend of mine who sadly recently passed away. She wrote about a frustrating birth family search process, which was ultimately unsuccessful. Um, that was also through Easton. And she wrote, quote, after that trip to my adoption agency, I gave up searching. The emotional turmoil it brought up forced me to stop. I was starting to hate Korea and Koreans and I didn't want to. End quote. And that just reminded me what you said about how the process might make you feel more ambivalent about Korea. Was that a part of it as well? Just this whole frustration with the agency and lack of transparency?
0: Yeah, I think that's a really big part of my ambivalence toward Korea for sure. People have talked about this before, but even the way that Eastern Social is set up like, as a building, um, means that the room that you view your file in is literally down the hall from where the babies are. And then after the file review, which is, like I said, like, really kind of, like, secretive and, like, very guarded, they're like, okay, well, I'll take you on a tour around the building. And, you know, you go down to, like, the, um... The medical clinic, and on the day that I was visiting, it was the day that all the foster mothers were bringing their their the babies in for medical checkups. So it was just like this like the f- whole floor was just full of foster mothers with these little babies. It was yeah. It was just a really surreal experience to have the post adoption services on the same floor as as where the where the babies are kept.
1: Um, yeah kind of insensitive yeah. right <laughs> I think it shows a lack of understanding
0: for our experience totally and I was quite surprised because I thought that if I if I'm going as someone whose case was closed then I didn't really s- expect them to be as defensive and as secretive that was weird that was kind of unexpected and they basically said oh we have no more information for you Um, I brought along the information that I already had which was from my parents and also from the Victorian government and um, the caseworker Eastern was like wow, they're giving you more than we would give you. Because she was like, oh, if we gave you what we had, we would be blacking out the names of your birth parents. And you already have the names of your birth parents. And it was a weird conversation.
1: Right. I mean, her tone around that sounds really weird as well. Like, she also knows that that's your personal information. I, I, I just, I wonder, I guess, whether many of these social workers are sensitive yeah, about the fact that adoptees don't grow up with this, information and and kind of despite what the current regulation is around birth and research process i think that there's ethically a, a right to our own information
0: <laughs> um, yeah totally there's obviously like the culture of the institution where they aren't transparent and they are looking out for their best interests right and then i'm not sure if there's also the other cultural aspect like i've heard that you know some caseworkers will be like very unwilling to share certain parts of your file if they think that it's in your best interests to not know it so they are in your best interests keeping stuff from you this is by the way what i heard from from the victorian government that sometimes in dealings in dealings with uh eastern there's a bit of a battle over what is the best interests of the adoptee, and what is the right that the adoptee has to their information, and they can come into conflict?
1: Yeah. I've also heard stories, um, like, such as, you know, the Eastern was able to contact the birth mother, and the birth mother um, declined contact or something for whatever reason. And then so, Eastern that oh it's it's like kind of just to say that we couldn't find her sorry (laughs) um yeah i understand but that's just completely wrong yeah yeah (laughs) straight up wrong
0: (laughs) i mean i think it's it's like the convergence of them protecting themselves and how we are just constantly infantilized. Hmm. Like, we are like forever children that that don't know what's best for us, right? That shouldn't be charged with the agency to decide over what information's important for us to know and what, what we prefer people don't
1: tell us. I was also wondering, you said that you've discovered that your Korean name was given to you by Easton and not by your birth mother. I think it's, um, like, unfortunately really a common experience. You know, I've even heard stories of, of adoptees who, like, tattoo their Korean names, but, like, only, you know, later to discover that it, that it was just a name from the adoption agency. I mean, I, I've also, I kind of had this interesting discussion once with an adoptive mother in Australia where, where I said, you know, if it's just a name given to you by a social worker, it's not necessarily that meaningful. And she was like, oh, actually, you know, in my son's case, it was a name from the social worker, but it is very meaningful because, you know, it be. Anyway, I'm just wondering what your thoughts were about that. Well,
0: I guess my feelings about, about my name, there, there's the fact that it was given to me by a social worker, and there's also the fact that I was named after my birth father. And my birth father's details... I'm not sure if they're true. I think there have been at least two police searches for him. They know, based on my file at least, they know his age, where he's from, his level of education. I don't know if he has an incredibly common name, but it just raises questions for me. So so basically it's, is his name on my file actually his name? Um, and then secondly, if I was named after him, then it's kind of like two levels, right, Of is this really a real connection or not? You know, now that I'm older and understand a bit more about this, I would have preferred to have been named after my birth mother than my birth father. But and that's another that's an, another issue. But um, in some ways I feel like it's really fitting that my name comes from the adoption agency because the adoption agency played such a huge role in me being where I am now that them naming me as a symbolic act, it doesn't feel very nice but in some way it's like well it fits in, in a really weird way. Yeah.
1: you talked about how birth family search might open up other aspects or dimensions of your life and i think that's a really interesting point i know it's also quite a personal thing i'm not sure if you want to talk about it further but i guess i feel like in in a different way maybe um i was also starting to question multiple aspects of my life um and i also wonder like, I feel like for adopted maybe for a long time, or maybe even forever, we can just, I don't know, just accept our Australian or, like, adoptive identity until something happens, until something kind of, like, confronts us or forces us to question our, our identities further. Um, anyway, I just wondered if you wanted to, like expand on it because i think it's it's an interesting thing to talk about i don't know if it's the catalyst
0: for a lot of other those other bigger questions or if it just at some point in your life you're just ready to like like bring it on let's just like (laughs) deal with all this like big existential shit um so yeah i don't know if it started it or if it was just like part of a like larger general process but i think yeah i guess the point that i was trying to make is that it's really difficult to contain it as if it's just like one line of questioning that doesn't open up all these other different pockets of your life that you thought were kind of irrelevant to the fact that you're adopted. Because I think it opens up questions about you know does does where i come from impact on who i am or is that just simply where i was born and that's just like a fact and an irrelevant fact because we're all born somewhere or is it actually does it actually play a much larger role in in your sense of self do you think
1: that this process of like questioning and um, identification is kind of coming to rest a bit now or do you think it's still ongoing or that's a very general question sorry but
0: in terms of like actually in terms of my adoption I feel like I'm just at the start I feel like this is hopefully the beginning of Mm. a longer term enriching relationship that I'll have both with my birth family and with korea i don't feel like it's it's at its end at all i have lots of worries about being trans and being adopted i have no idea how that's gonna play out in the future but i think for a while i was really worried that being trans meant that i couldn't really pursue a connection to birth family family and Korea as much as I might have liked. And I was worried that it would have to be like a bit of a choice between the two. So when I went to Korea in 2017, I had only just started HRT or hormone replacement therapy. And so at that point, I looked and sounded a little bit different um, and I thought, I'm just going to go, I'm just going to try really hard. I'm going to go to Eastern, I'm going to go to Goal, I'm going to go to Masan. And if I find her, then that's great. But maybe this is like the, you know, this is like the shot I'm going to give. And then now it's like, well, it's great because, you know, we, we're now in contact. But then there's also the steady, like the increasing worry that like, the more time goes by, the more different I'm going to look and sound and I'm worried about how I'm going to navigate that with, with her so yeah. yeah
1: I mean I think even without that dimension right there is like really a fear of um, I guess of being rejected in some way is this um something that you've been able to talk about with other trans adoptees
0: not really um, I read Annie Mara's beautiful uh, ghost story piece, I think, in HuffPost. I think we should definitely put a link up to that on our on our social media. Yes, um, yes, we will. That was really beautiful. I think that was the first bit of writing that I ever read on um, a trans Korean adoptee and their experience in in Korea. So that, like, it's such a it's such a beautiful piece. Um, so I really appreciate it for that, but also for that, like, I guess little bit of representation um i know a few a handful of queer adoptees um but haven't really been able to talk to anyone about navigating the physical transition yeah so happy to talk about my experience on our show though Uh,
1: Because you mentioned it, so you have um, now organized a time to meet with your birth mother in person.
0: Yeah, it's, um, that's been a very, very, very recent development. So literally, like, like within the last week, um, I have set up a couple days in Korea to meet her. She's going to be coming with my grandmother, I believe, and a friend of mine is going to help with translation so that's going to happen in the middle of july yeah i guess we'll we'll see how (laughs) how um how it all goes in terms of in terms of the gender stuff i guess especially that's my biggest concern is that it's kind of hard to hide it and i'm really worried that she's yeah, I guess she, that she's going to reject me or freak out and be like, but you know, you know, but I I had a daughter. Yeah, who knows? I don't I don't know if she's religious. Um and then I don't know what my if she's coming with my grandmother and my grandmother was from my understanding the person that facilitated my adoption. Um I don't know what if my grandmother is religious. Um I have I have no idea. I'm going to speak to my friend beforehand about if it does come up, which I imagine it will, how I would like my friend to explain it to my birth mother. Yeah. Um, I feel like if we can sort of draft and brainstorm that conversation before it has to happen, I feel like that would make me feel like somewhat more prepared for it. But yeah, it feels like a really big risk because... I feel like this is going to sound really pessimistic, but I'm worried that, like, this time that I'm in right now, which is the time where she's agreed to meet me and we haven't yet met, yeah. like, I'm worried that this is going to be, like, the best time because it's a time of anticipation and it's a time before she's rejected me and it's the time when everything feels like like there is a future, you know, like there is some sort of positive relationship that we could have, um, and it would be really, really sad to to think that oh, this is the like this is the best it was gonna be
1: or something. If that makes sense, I really hope that you know, worst case scenario is that um, she's shocked and maybe like needs some time, and then uh, I think you're just so I think you're just really courageous in this whole process and also like sharing this with us um and i, I kind of wish there was more guidance or like stuff out there on this you know like when i went into search reunion um there were a lot of like resources that i could draw on you know to kind of prepare and yeah i just feel really privileged in a way i simpler for me
0: Oh, I don't think it's simple for any of us. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, I think there are resources, but yeah, I just, I don't think that it's ever really probably straightforward and without its difficulties and and all of that. Um, I mean, the other great thing about the timing of my meeting with my birth mother is that... um, well, the week after, I'll be, we will be doing a uh, episode in the same country, which is yeah, <laughs> great, and <laughs> and probably for our listeners, they're like, oh, we wanted to listen to the, <laughs> this audio quality, um, yeah. So after I see her, I'll be back in Seoul for a week, and I'll like, you know, obviously get to hang out with you, and um, there are a few queer adoptees in Seoul that I will also kind of reach out to and um I feel like there there are lots of supports out there and um and then the week after that's of course the gathering I feel like I'm, I'm definitely not going to be alone yeah in some ways like those three weeks could be just like incredible who knows <laughs> <laughs> we can only hope
1: I think it, yeah no it sounds like I just I think, no, I think it will be um really fulfilling in a lot of ways and then yeah with the timing of like you know your reunion in the first week then there'll be like lots of opportunities um like debriefs and drinking and debriefs over drinking you know
0: (laughs) that's what i'm expecting (laughs) thanks so much for listening i hope you found this episode useful as always if you have any questions please shoot us an email to AdoptedFeels at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook at AdoptedFeels Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at AdoptedFeels. And if you like what you hear, please rate us on iTunes and or support us via Patreon.